G'day and welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's a Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, as we usually say every every week, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcast, or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Just as a reminder, we're still not out of the COVID pandemic, so we are still recording outside the studio right now. And I must admit, we've had a few little issues trying to do this interview Technology works to a certain point, and then sometimes it doesn't do very nice things to us. But this is our third attempt at doing this interview, and I know we're going to make it work. So with that, I would very much like to introduce you to Matthew Duda, who is doing a PhD in biology under the supervision of Dr. John Small. Welcome to Grad Chat, Matt. Thank you for having me. I'm glad we could finally make this work. <laughs> well, fingers crossed, we we still can, which is why we wanted to get cracking straight away. It's been quite quite um, quite hilarious, really, a bit scary, but hilarious too. So, with that though, back in December last year, I I remember reading an article in the Gazette again, in the Queen's Gazette, and it featured Matt in that of, of some of the work that he was doing. And as you know, I. That's my way sometimes of figuring out who I want on the show because then we can expand a little bit on the article. So this is where it all came. And so luckily, Matt said yes to coming on the show too, which is awesome for us. So with that, your research topic is, just to remind people, using, I can never say this word actually, using paleoliminology to reconstruct past seabird populations. And that's a big, always a big word for me. And uh, I'm sure it just rolls off your tongue, Matt. But for me, I have to concentrate really hard on how to say it. <laughs> so perhaps you can just give us a bit of an overview first of your research before we go into some of the other questions that I've got for you. Yeah, absolutely. So what paleolimnology is, or usually we just say paleo because it is such a mouthful, even if you say it all the time. <laughs> is we use lake sediments to reconstruct past ecosystem dynamics. So because lakes accumulate all the changes that are happening surrounding the ecosystem and surrounding the lake, and they accumulate all of the changes that are happening within the lake, and those settle down to the bottom of the lake, forming uh, actually the sediments themselves. And what we do is we take a big tube, we put it down into the sediments, pull it up, and then by sectioning it out and adding dates to it, so using stable isotopes and carbon-14, fancy stuff like that, you can date each little layer of the sediment and then look at other different kinds of proxies to figure out how the ecosystem changed in the past. And this is really interesting because it allows us to go back in time and understand what the ecosystem looked like before we had any kind of monitoring, which is where my work uh, fits in. Which, which is great. I mean, it's, it's almost like you're a, a, a combination of a biologist, a geologist, and an archaeologist, aren't you? Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is good. I mean, I've always liked archaeology and everything, so it might be right up my alley as well. Now, sometimes people 
we use this, um, there's a term called uh, what is natural before human interference? Because like you said, you know, you were talking about how you're looking at the different levels and things and what's happened. So natural, I am I'm assuming you're talking about normal evolution, you know, um, such as adapting to the environment we are currently in, whether that be the result of a, a storm, an ice age, a bushfire, a meteor impact, where ultimately the fittest and those able to adapt survived. But some people may say that adapting to what humans have done to the environment is part of natural evolution. So is there a distinction and what would you say to those people? Yeah, and that's an interesting point. So yes, organisms are evolving and they're responding to impacts of humans. But the issue is that the rate of impact that we're having right now on the ecosystem is far faster than any kind of organism can naturally adapt to. And this is why we start to see huge uh, amounts of extinction going on right now with broad, broad scale, all organisms, most biodiversity is declining because climate warming is impacting the environment so quickly, you know, pollution and other types of human or anthropogenic stressors are happening, happening much faster than uh, any kind of organism can evolve to survive. And, and so there was another, you, you sent me an article that you also helped write too called Linking 19th Century European Settlement to the Disruption of a Seabird's Natural Population Dynamics, where it was stated that, and I have in quotes here, recent estimates indicate that about 70% of the world's seabird populations have declined since the 1950s due to human activities. Now, that's a huge, huge number, which I guess goes to show what you've just been saying then about the, the rate of change in our environment is, is too fast for the, the usual way of natural selection and, and survival of the fittest. But of course, that is, that is from the 1950s. And your work, as you mentioned earlier, looks further back from, from when you said monitoring wasn't done in the same way as it is today. Now, you used also this word, you know, looking at natural versus what was influenced by humans, or the, that word you, you used was anthropogenics. Um, and that's sort of things like, I guess, air pollution, which, of course, we know is a, has, has had a huge impact, but, of course, has increased uh, with industrialization. So how does your paleo fit into this and how does it work? And I guess, how can you use it to track seabird trends? So maybe I'll start from the beginning. So that paper that you noted that said that 70% of seabird populations have declined. So the way that they managed to get that, that 70% is they looked at all of the available monitoring. So monitoring for seabirds is generally you go to the island and it's a huge amount of work. You have to um, band the birds and come back multiple years. You have to physically count how many there are. And because this is such a huge amount of effort, regular censusing can only happen once every few years. Yeah, that's due to financial and you know, time-wise, it's just such a huge effort. And then the other part of that is that you know, conservation biology hasn't really been very popular for a long period of time. It really only started in the 1950s and then became much more popular in the 1980s. But from the 1980s until present, you know, human impacts on the environment have 
you know, skyrocketed. So we don't have any kind of good data before 1950, often before 1980. So that's where my paleo data goes in. Because the birds are impacting the environment and the ecosystem all the time, and those sediments are accumulating continuously, we can go back in time all the way back to when the lake itself was formed. And if the lake was formed and then the birds are already there, those impacts of the birds, like nutrient introductions, metal introductions, changes in the, uh, the pollen, it all gets accumulated into the sediment. And then you can go back in time and understand was the bird population higher, smaller? When did it start to decline? And then when you look at a population that now from available censusing, say from the 1950s or from the 1980s, it looks like it's declining. Well, with the paleo, you can go back in time and see when did that population start to decline? How fast has it been declining? What's the natural baseline conditions? Now, this is where the, the baseline conditions comes in. We expect seabird populations and most organism populations not to be stable. You expect them to fluctuate and increase and decrease as you know there's a heat wave or something like that were to kill off some of the animals. But we don't understand what is the natural variability there because we don't have that long-term data especially for seabirds, which are long lived. So, you know, every 20 years, it's only a couple generation cycles. So to fully understand the long-term dynamics, you need to go way further back in time than what we have available with regular monitoring. Does the fact that the often seabirds or birds in general, they migrate, a lot of them migrate each year, is that taken into your calculations too? Yeah, and that's a that's a big part of it as well. Because seabirds do migrate and they move and birds in general move around, you know, conservation biology needs to be uh, more international. So for a major colony that I study, the leeches storm petrel in, for example, in, uh, in Newfoundland, they only breed in Newfoundland for a few months. The rest of the year, they spend in international waters. They fly all the way to the west, uh, west coast of Africa, down to Brazil, and we don't know what's going on with them while they're there. It's, right. So that's a big part of uh, trying to understand what's going on with population. Yes, because I mean, where is the issue with them? Is it in our country or is it in someone else's country where that environment has changed too much? Yeah, exactly. And that's uh, a big part of it is, you know, it's important to understand what the population is doing at the breeding site, which is in Canada and Newfoundland. But, you know, that's not necessarily where the biggest stressors are. It's, important, it's an important place to start the research, but it expands beyond that. And that's why, you know, international collaboration is really a big aspect of the work that I've been doing. I know you're not studying all the birds, but I would imagine, I mean, you just see here around in Kingston, you know, we've got all the, the geese that here that are supposed to in winter fly south and more and more are, are sticking around because it's it's warmer. But one of the purposes I would imagine with the migration is is one, to get to warmer climates to help them. But along, along, some of them have really long journeys, so a lot of them would make it anyway because of the flight journey, the, the length of the, the flight. If they're staying here in Kingston, for instance, 
if suddenly we have a snap freeze, then they're dying for different reasons. And I'm wondering how much that takes into play too about the population sizes. Yeah, so there's recently been a study in science that actually looked at this uh, and it's pretty interesting. It appears that almost every single uh, group of birds is declining other than the waterfowl. So things like geese are and cormorants are actually increasing and they're uh, able to take advantage of these new conditions better than other birds are. You know, organisms are birds that usually utilize fields are one of the ones that are most in decline where because that type of ecosystem is declining, you know, fields are less and less prevalent, whereas this kind of marshy wetlands are increasing in abundance and those kinds of geese and cormorants are able to take advantage and actually increase it's all fascinating isn't it how it how it all works because i see the the the, the, the geese here thinking fly south you idiots <laughs> <laughs> you might have been yeah. going south but as you what you just said is actually they're doing okay here so it's no wonder they want to stick around um so let's go back to the bird that you're looking at actually studying and you, you mentioned it it was the storm petrel and you you talked about them being up you're studying them up in newfoundland um, so tell me a bit about those colonies why did you want to study them per se and what are you finding so far yeah so the leech's storm petrel is a really interesting bird it's one of the most abundant birds that we have in canada but unfortunately their populations are in decline they're to tell you a little bit about them, they're small and nocturnal, and they're they're really quite black. Their wingspan is uh, around two feet long, so you can imagine from your fingertip to your elbow. And they form these huge colonies, up to millions of birds on remote islands. They're, because they're so small, they can be eaten by mammals pretty easily. So what they do to, to avoid mammals, like otters and foxes, is they nest on remote islands. So that's why I had to go to these kind of islands that are close to Newfoundland, but they're out in the middle of the ocean. You have to take a boat or a helicopter to get to them. They're completely uninhabited by people. And so you think that would be good for them then? Yes. So most of the time it's good for them, but every so often what appears to happen is predators will actually find them. So things like gulls will come and they'll, Pretty much have a heyday amongst the the birds and their populations will get decimated right so they're getting eaten by other birds yeah and so other birds and every so often uh, foxes can get introduced to these islands so there's um, historical evidence of Bakaloo island in newfoundland one of the main islands that i studied the uh, lighthouse keepers that used to live there brought red foxes for fun for hunting oh, and right. Their population obviously uh, increased a little bit, and they're supposedly uh, one of the reasons why the storm petrel population declined is the foxes began to eat all of the, the nesting birds. And then on Grand Colombier Island in St. Pierre, another bird uh, colony that's really big, supposedly there's anecdotal evidence of a ship crashing into the island and releasing a whole bunch of rats, and those rats would decimate the bird population as well. So every so often, humans introduce invasive species that can really uh, alter the 
ecosystem as a whole. And so it, the storm petrel, I mean, you mentioned that they, they do fly a long way. What are the populations looking at from, you said here they're in decline, um, but you, you can't tell what's happening in the other countries where they fly to right now. Are we the only breeding place for them? Uh, not necessarily. There's other colonies. For, so they're around the globe. They're in the Atlantic Ocean. There's colonies. The biggest ones are in Newfoundland. But there's also colonies in Iceland and uh, in Scotland and Norway. And then on the Pacific coast, there's also a colony, a very large colony in Japan. So we're not the only one. The issue is that globally, it appears that all of the populations are declining. So the question now becomes, well, why are all of the colonies declining and how, how, how much have they been declining by? And how could we reverse the declines to hopefully have the population recover and stabilize? Well, I hope we do find a way because we don't want that. I, I know even, it's interesting you say sometimes invasive species have been introduced but in Canada, I mean, because of global warming, even at you know the lake here in uh, you know Kingston, from between Kingston and Wolf Island, it's not freezing the same way. So you don't have that migration of other species going across to the islands and things like you used to, because it's not it's not safe for them to do. So you you think in one way that would help colonies like this, but maybe not because they're being introduced in other ways, as you said. Yeah, it's a really complicated, multifaceted question. And again, that's where the, the long-term data comes in. You know, it, it's easy to say that anthropogenic causes are the main reason why all birds are in decline. But you know, we have to also consider natural variability. And what if a population was naturally declining anyway? And then the two surveys that you have are just catching that curve. And it appears that it's declining. You know, by having this additional context, the long-term context, you can begin to understand uh, more holistically what the decline is, why it's declining, natural variability between different islands, and that can really add to the amount of uh, the data to help put in place the most effective conservation strategies. But I think it also would highlight too where if there was a natural slow progression, the, the fact that since the, the industrial revolution and things and all the new pollutants that we have out there, um, shown how something that would normally have taken say 200 years to change is, is taking 10 years to change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so that's, so, you know, in terms of science, I think that's a great thing to be able to, sh to show to, the, to those people who don't believe in climate change, for, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that really actually brings uh, brings up the, the recent paper that I've published in the Proceedings of the National Academy, which addressed this exact question um, and showed the rapid decrease in populations uh, that only started around the 1800s, which is really interesting. Right. Uh, so, And that was more with European settlement? Yeah, that's the one. So... The reason why we went to go study that island is because the population looked like it was stable based on the available survey from the 1980s. It looked like there were around 400,000 birds on this island. That's a huge number. And the question I was asking was, well, why, why is this colony stable? 
every other major colony of storm petrels around the world is declining. Maybe right. there's something special about this island that we can figure out and understand why it's unstable and the conditions that are needed for the protection of other colonies. So what we did is we went back in time using our paleo techniques. And what we found is that the population naturally fluctuates, which was expected. We went back uh, 5,800 years. There were huge peaks in the colony, then they declined, and then they increased again up until around 1800. And then the colony completely crashed. You know, right. It used to be, we expect it used to be over 2 million birds on the island, and now it's only 400,000. And the timing of that peak is exactly when Europeans settled nearby the colony. Right. Which is scary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And the, the impacts of Europeans are just, there. there's multifold. The impact of humans in general, isn't it, of what we, what we bring to new environments. Exactly. So not very good at working with the environment or, or fitting in. We try and overtake. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the impacts of uh, human settlement nearby this colony wasn't purposeful. Like they didn't, they didn't mean to destroy the seabird colony. It just happened that the, the byproduct of arrival and settling and increasing in their call and the settlement had negative repercussions for the seabirds. So now the question is really, how do you uh, reconcile that decline? How do we conserve it? and hopefully allow the population to naturally increase and survive. Well, the only real way is for us to get out, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and not keep introducing invasive species into areas that need to be protected. Yeah. Which is, which is no easy fate. And then, like you said, also you have to have, for it to really work, you need um, the globe to be on board. Yeah, exactly. The first step is really understanding when and why the declines are happening. And now that we're starting to understand it and we're starting to understand the broad scale importance of other people, other cultures, other populations really helping to protect this colony, maybe we can then begin to sustain it. I'm just wondering with this, some of the work that you're doing with this paleo stuff, I shouldn't call it stuff, sorry, paleo-technology, <laughs> <laughs> it, it can easily be transferred to other wildlife. And we've seen it's very obvious what's happening in Africa with all the beautiful you know, animals there that uh, their populations are getting smaller and smaller. And a lot of that is from poaching, but others is encroaching on their environment. And one would say, well, it's more potentially more important to worry about those as opposed to a seabird that you never see. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's difficult for those species who aren't as in the human's mind as as it is on those sort of the big animals like the wildcats and the rhinos and the elephants and things. Yeah, the, the, we they're often termed the charismatic megafauna. Yeah, this right. is a, a well-known phenomenon. Yeah. Pandas really, as an organism, should have probably gone extinct many, many years ago. They're not very right. good at being a bear. And they only eat bamboo. But they're so adorable and so popular that uh, a lot of resources have been put into conserving pandas, and now their population is increasing. Unfortunately for a lot of organisms, 
they're not as adorable. They're not so much in the public's eye that their populations uh, aren't recovering in the same way because people don't care as much. It's interesting. My I'm going to bring up my brother and he's going to have a fit that I've used his name. <laughs> but he lives in New Zealand. And of course, New Zealand's known uh, known for their flightless birds. And for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, these birds have been able to, well, they've adapted not having to worry about flying because they, were, they had no predators. Well, of course, when as humans came and particularly European settlers came they bought with them weasels and stoats and rats and things which then these flightless birds are prime picking so there's areas in new zealand which my brother's helping in the conservation areas where they actually go out and and trap the weasels and the stoats and 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 the rats to help protect areas where there are the kiwis and kias and all those sorts of birds so um you know and this is a you know, New Zealand's not a big place, mm. but they realise the importance of protecting those flightless birds and doing what they can. They they even put colonies on certain little islands, but of course didn't realise weasels and stoats can swim and things. So they still got to them. So they had to rethink that. Yeah, it's it's amazing that that's on the opposite side of the world from where I've been studying, but it's it completely parallels the same kind of issues that we've been having. Uh, in Newfoundland, and the same issues that have been seen in Alaska, where foxes have caused the puffin population to decline. You know, it's we keep seeing it come up time and time again, these yeah. invasive species causing huge destruction for seabirds, organisms in general, and the ecosystem in response declines, and it's not as suitable for regular functioning. But the, the flip side of that with the kind of work that you're doing does give us hope that we can change how what the progression is right now. And, and I'll use another example. In Australia, there was another little species there that everyone, the, the declining population, because once again of introduced species of a certain animal, and to be honest, it was a little marsupial, and I can't think of its proper name. So then they were able to, they bought they they got as many as they could to repopulate and then they've put them back, cleared the area where they would normally live, cleared the area of those invasive species, and now they've managed to put them back. So, you know, there is hope, but we need to know what's there first and what, what's causing it, don't we, those declines? Yeah, absolutely. That addresses a really interesting um, concept in conservation biology called shifting baselines. Right. Where... You know, yes, is that the natural thing to do? <laughs> yeah, right. So we're playing, we're playing with it, aren't we? Again. Yes, exactly. You know, shifting baselines is interesting because, as conservation biologists, right now we're only aware of the colony that we've grown up with and the colony size that uh, we've been told has existed there in the past. But as time progresses, you know, what is natural and the baseline conditions changes. What people right. expect to be normal completely changes. And that's what we addressed on Grand Colombier there in, in Newfoundland is the colony appeared to be stable. But if you go back 200 years, you can see that it is stable, but not relative to what it was in the past. And you right. can begin to connect the dots and figure out what was natural, what is stable, mm -hmm. and what we can strive for uh, as conservation biologists, the number that we should go back to. 
Because it's really playing with Darwin's theory, isn't it, of evolution? Yeah. We're playing with it. It's not, it is, it's not necessarily natural anymore because we're manipulating in, exactly. in some form, whether it's positive or negative for that particular species. We are manipulating. Yeah. And it's not great for ecosystems. You know, there's, there's cascading effects. Once the number of birds declines, then the number of fish and their community composition changes which then causes the terrestrial environment to change because the nutrient flow is different. You know, as soon as one organism starts to disappear or starts to deteriorate, the entire ecosystem as a whole, because it's so connected, begins to shift and fluctuate and a lot of times has really negative repercussions. Right. So what's it like having Dr. John Small as your supervisor? Because, I mean, he's a bit of a legend in his field. Yeah, yeah, he is. John, John's a great supervisor. He comes with 30 years of experience. He's worked on every continent and he's done so many amazing different projects. And because of that, he has a lot of great insight for uh, the students that are coming in. You know, when I came in, uh, I was very green for paleo. I, I came in with just a keen interest in seabirds and, and birds in general as a backyard birder. His, his wealth of knowledge was really beneficial in uh, structuring the project and making it have the, the kind of uh, results that we have right now. It's, he's been good to work with. Yeah, and, and with Dr. Small, he's, he loves working with students, um, which is why he's won so many more awards, not just in his own research, but in teaching as well, because he has such a passion for it all. So you're very lucky to have him. <laughs> yes, 100%. Eh? He likes to remind us that we're lucky to have him and then we just tell him, <laughs> you're lucky to have us to be doing all the legwork too. Yeah, and for those who don't know him, he's a very unassuming man, but he does some amazing work. <laughs> um, so before we finish, we've all had, you know, last in 2020, of course, it was the year of the, the pandemic or the, the latest pandemic, I guess. I'm sure there's going to be more coming at some stage, um, which is a bit... <laughs> a bit of a doom and gloom sort of statement, I think. But but during the pandemic, a lot of us ended up trying to do new things because we were sitting around all the time, whether it was getting out and going for more walks to get fresh air or doing other activities. And I understand you took up a variety of crafts as, as something different to do, like knitting and embroidery, embroidery. What got you thinking about those two particular activities to do? Yeah, uh, so really... You know, with the pandemic and staying home all the time, ended up watching a lot of TV, which quickly made me feel pretty lazy and I needed to do something with my hands. I needed to have something uh, as, a, as a product at the end of a, day, a long day of watching TV and binging Netflix. So I took up knitting and have been trying to make a quilt for the last, for the last several months and it's slowly coming together, but... That's good. Yeah. And I guess if you do knitting and things too, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I did a lot of people get scarves for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite at the level yet that I would feel comfortable giving anyone my, uh, <laughs> my knitting <laughs> projects with lots of holes still in them, dropping stitches and picking up stitches uh, in different places. It's interesting, actually, because it's one of those things that not many of us think about doing anymore. I mean, I know growing up it was... 
you have to learn how to sew and things. But um, knitting is fabulous because, first of all, you get a nice item from it that you can you can use, which is very useful. But I guess if if you, if you ever wanted to go into fishing and things, you have to learn how to do knots and different stitches and things to make nets and what have you. So there's, there's lots of things you could be changing it through. But I'll take my hat off to you for doing that. I wouldn't have the patience to, to do knitting because I have tried it several times without much success. Yeah. Now, I'm lucky to have a partner who's a well-accomplished knitter, and she's the one that holds my hand and fixes <laughs> every single hole and mistake I make. So that's well, also that's really good. nice to have. Well, I'm, I'm glad she's there to support you, so that's fantastic. Matt, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it, and even your... Um, resilience to to keep trying to make this work because <laughs> things we had so many issues trying to get the recording done so i do appreciate you sort of hanging on there and giving it another go yeah it's been a pleasure and thank you for taking the time to do this no worries at all and best of luck with the rest of your research uh, it's, it's going to be very very important to see those trends and things that you can find out so thank you thank you so that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat Study comes to an end. And don't forget, you can download, download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcast, or Stitcher. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.